Welcome. I'm Panayota Daphniotis, and I'm your host for an intellectual property podcast series brought to you by Dentons Canada. This podcast series covers a broad range of intellectual property topics on patents, trademarks, copyrights, trade secrets, and related IP disputes with an emphasis on the practical, giving companies of all sizes and industries the IP intel they should be thinking about. You can find our episodes at www.dentons.com on our podcast page. There, you can access all of our intellectual property podcasts as well as an episode description for each topic and information about our speakers. We are currently living in unprecedented times and we hope all of our listeners are in good health and staying positive. It is worth mentioning that we, like many of you, are working remotely and so we are recording these podcasts from our respective new home offices and we are excited to be able to do so and bring this content to our listeners. And now, over to our podcast topic and speakers. While patents and trademarks often receive the lion's share of an organization's intellectual property focus, copyrights comprise a critical third prong to a healthy IP strategy, even for companies whose products and services involve little or no content creation. Copyright has become a mainstream issue for some and understanding how it works is an increasingly necessary skill. In the online world, consumers come face to face with copyright law, but sometimes remain confused or unsure about what they may or may not legally do. Today's episode is intended to offer practical guidance and answers to common questions regarding copyright law in Canada. And we are in good hands today to cover this topic with two leaders in this field. With me today, I have Bob Tarantino, who is counsel in our Toronto uh, office and is a member of Denton's Intellectual Property and Media, Entertainment and Sports Practice Groups. Bob holds graduate degrees in law from Osgoode Hall and the University of Oxford, including a PhD from Osgoode Hall Law School. Bob focuses his practice on the interface between the entertainment industries and intellectual property law, with an emphasis on film and television production, financing, licensing, distribution, and IP acquisition and protection. Also with us today is Margot Patterson, who is counsel in our Denton's office in Ottawa. Margot is a member of Denton's intellectual property, communications law, competition law, and media, entertainment, and sports practice groups. Margot advises leading businesses in entertainment, e-commerce, and technology on exploiting, growing, and protecting their commercial assets. Designated by the Law Society of Upper Canada as a certified specialist in copyright, she regularly advises clients on tariffs certified by the Copyright Board of Canada and has acted as an expert advisor to international organizations 
on the copyright system in Canada. As for myself, I'm Panayota Daphniotis, a partner and national lead for the intellectual property group at Dentons in Canada. I have over 20 years experience as an IP lawyer working in all areas of intellectual property, helping clients manage, grow, and commercialize IP portfolios globally, protect their innovation, and manage IP risk. So let's dive in. Margot, Bob, I'm really glad to have you here today um, for us to address this topic. Now, I think copyright is a topic with maybe a lot of misconceptions, and I would almost say, um, you know, urban legends surrounding it. I think, um, you know, this, it, it makes it both simple and complicated to understand at the same time. And I think it's simple because many of the concepts are quite straightforward. There are straightforward set of principles to be applied and that govern how it works, but it's complicated because there are a number of contradictory, almost conflicting concepts to, to understand and deal with. And so I think the two of you um, uh, will really uh, help us sort of unpack this here today. And I thought a good way to begin is to begin with the, the really the common questions I think all of us have encountered and recur in our practice um, and that we receive from in-house counsel and companies we support in this space. And so, um, Bob, I think I'm going to begin with you uh, and, and, and begin with the first question. And the first question is one that uh, we, we hear, you know, very, very often, and it is, we found this article or this particular content, let's just say it's an article, on the internet. Can we use it in our internal letter or our internal library? Um, why don't you Why don't you take that one, Bob? Sure, thanks, and, and I appreciate the opportunity uh, to have this conversation with you, Paniata. So, look, as you said, one of the tricky things about copyright is that it's complicated, uh, while seemingly simple. And one of the things which makes it complicated is that copyright rights are really easy to acquire in the sense that there's a lot of stuff which is protected by copyright. And copyright's quite easy to infringe in the sense that a lot of different things can constitute an act of infringement. And so to the question that you pose, you know, I found some content on the internet, I'd, I'd like to use it, can I do so? You have to contend with the notion that there's a very significant difference between something being publicly available and something being in the public domain in the sense that something in the public domain is free to use and you don't need anybody's permission to use it. So to be very, very clear, just because something is on the internet does not mean it's in the public domain and that it can be used without permission. As I mentioned, almost ever a lot of stuff is protected by copyright. Um, and, and so, you almost always have to contend with somebody's rights and you almost always have to contend with obtaining somebody's permission in order to avoid a potential infringement claim. One thing I wanted to focus on in, in the question is you mentioned 
we'd like to use it in our internal newsletter. Right. So the there's implicit in that is this sort of notion that, well, we're just, you know, it's just going to be in the office. The only people who are ever going to see this are, you know, the, the folks kind of on this floor or within this particular, you know, uh, group of employees or, or in the, within this particular company. And again, not a solution. Right. Just because something will only be seen by a limited set of eyes or will only be kind of made available within a, a, a walled garden or in a constrained context, that's not a defense to a, a claim of copyright infringement. So when you encounter content on the Internet, I think you have to be sensitive to the fact that it's likely protected by copyright and you almost certainly need to turn your mind to whether you need to get permission to use it. And you also at the same time have to contend with the fact that just because you want to make a very limited use of it or something which seems private or something which seems like it couldn't constitute infringement because it's an inward facing or an internal use, uh, that's not a solution to, to the question of do we need permission for this use. And I think emphasizing the internal um, part of that as, as being sort of, you know, don't take comfort in um, the fact that it's just internal because it can still be uh, infringement is, is really important. Uh, we, we hear that so often. Um, and, um, and so that's, that's a great point to emphasize, Bob. And so, you know, another question, again, incredibly relevant with the use of social media um, within companies in terms of their social media marketing strategies. Um, there is um, you know, a question we get uh, over and over again about sharing a photo on Instagram. So someone has shared a photo on Instagram, can we use it? Margot, do you wanna take that one? Happy to, Yoda. Thanks very much for, for having this conversation. It's, um, it's, it's gonna be a lot of fun going through some of these issues that we hear from clients a lot. So just as you were explaining, um, it's easy to take comfort or to um, believe that because something is available on a particular program, in this case, Instagram, Instagram is, is really a place, it's a hub for people to, to share their content. Often it's, it's a photo, sometimes it's a video, sometimes it's accompanied by music. And of course, um, those images, those um, those videos, the, the music, and even the, the brands that are shown, those are all subject to intellectual property. So just because it's on Instagram doesn't necessarily mean that it, as, uh, as Bob just put it, is in the public domain. So even Instagram needs to be careful in its, in its own terms of service um, to describe how it works as a platform. Uh, Instagram says, we do not claim ownership of your content, but you grant us a license to use it. Nothing is changing about your rights in your content. I think that puts it really well. Nothing is changing in the rights that, um, that belong to the people who uh, own the content. And here I'm being careful about saying who own the content rather than who, who post the content, because one of the things that you need to be careful about is whether the person who posts the content actually is the owner. So the first question is, um, who actually owns the content? And Paniota, as you know, I do a lot of advertising and marketing uh, advice to my clients, which is one of the most fun parts of my, my practice. And that's an area that's very dynamic. Um, 
it's it's fast moving. Uh, people want to to obviously push the envelope a little bit, stay ahead of their competitors, show show their audience something new all the time. And Instagram is um, offers a flood of really fascinating dynamic content. So the first thing is to understand who actually owns it, so that you can get the permission if you if you really want to use it. Another question is. Uh, are there images in, in, the, the, uh, in the photo? Uh, are there things that are caught in the photo that, um, that belong to even somebody else? Um, that could be a logo, it could be a piece of art, it could be a piece of architecture. So we at Denton's um, are the ones who are always uh, looking out for these details on behalf of our clients because when you're in a marketing department, your focus, your main focus is on creativity and on creating something new. And we know that um, it is not easy to keep track of all the details of, uh, of rights clearance. And so we operate as a separate set of eyes to, to help uh, figure out whether there are, as we sometimes put it to our, to our clients, any yellow flags, any red flags in terms of using content that they have found or that their agency has found for them. That's great. And, and I think, you know, when you mention rights clearance, uh, I certainly recall uh, working on a matter with the client where, uh, in fact, we were um, conducting some rights clearance and there was a photograph uh, used in their advertising campaign where someone was sitting in front of some art um, and um, the client hadn't really even given that any thought as being an issue. So uh, certainly that rights clearance comes in quite handy when uh, companies are investing pretty significantly in their marketing campaigns um, and want to be sure that they're successful and that, they, um, uh, that they're done uh, appropriately. So, so that's really helpful. Um, you know, you can't talk about copyright uh, without talking about fair use um, in my mind. And so um, one question that we do receive from clients pretty regularly as they dive into understanding copyright is, you know, hey, I keep hearing about fair use. What is it? How does it work? Um, you know, and so, and certainly understanding the difference between fair dealing and fair use from a Canadian and U.S. perspective, uh, for me, is part and parcel of that exercise. And so, Bob, you know, can I ask you to sort of take that and maybe break it down a little bit for us? Absolutely. And I'm going to keep returning to this theme of copyright being tricky. Uh, and I think fair use and fair dealing is a, a great illustration of that complexity. So, the fundamental kind of problem or not problem but the thing you need to recognize when it comes to people talking about fair use because that definitely is the term uh, that you hear a lot and definitely that's the term that clients tend to approach us with is that fair use is an american concept so fair use is a defense under united states copyright law we have an analogous concept in Canada called fair dealing, but they're, you know, so they're analogous. There are some similarities, there's overlap, but they are also quite different uh, in their application. And so one of the cautions I always try to give to clients is to say, look, be aware of the fact that 
copyright is a global issue um, and that there are differences in different jurisdictions. And so don't simply listen to somebody or, or read something about fair use and think that it applies in the Canadian context because that's often not the case. Um, let me pivot a bit to talk about fair dealing in Canada. Fair dealing in Canada is a user's right. It's a, it's a defense to a claim of infringement uh, set out in the Copyright Act. One of the peculiarities of, of how fair dealing works in Canada is that it's fair dealing only works in certain circumstances. So there's essentially a two-part test to sort of successfully claim fair dealing if you're accused of copyright infringement. The first part of that test is you have to slot your activity within one of eight enumerated activities in the Copyright Act. So the Copyright Act says fair dealing is a defense. Um, the dealing is fair if you're doing it for one of these eight purposes. And those purposes are both constraining while at the same time, in some cases, being fairly open-ended. So there are things like criticism, review, parody, satire, education. Um, and, and it can be tricky for clients sometimes to, to avail themselves of the, of the fair dealing defense because you, you do have to you know, make sure that your activity at a threshold level is within one of those enumerated purposes. Even if you clear that hurdle, which is a fairly low bar, um, you then move on to the next step of the fair dealing analysis, which is a six part multifactorial test, uh, which is very context driven. It, it, it's very granular and particularized. And so fair dealing is a tough defense often to shelter under. Um, one of the challenges in Canada, again, as compared to the United States, is that we don't have a lot of fair dealing case law. In the United States, you know, there are hundreds of, of fair use cases, which makes US lawyers' lives a lot easier because of the way that legal analysis works. They can kind of point to other cases and say, well, my client's situation is sort of like this situation that was talked about in this case. In Canada, we just can't do that, we can, which can sometimes be really frustrating both for lawyers and for clients. Um, and so, I, you know, I think it's important to be aware of fair dealing. I think it's important to recognize that users do have user rights under the Copyright Act, which they can avail themselves of. Um, I also think it's important not to be too cavalier about it or, or too optimistic, frankly, in terms of how often uh, you're going to be able to avail yourself of that defense, particularly, you know, in a commercial context, uh, particularly where our clients are doing the kinds of things that our clients, you know, the, the, the groups, uh, practice groups at Denton's, our clients tend to engage in. Um, fair dealing in particular might not always be available, uh, somewhat to everybody's frustration. And so I, I think this is a really important uh, point, and I'd like to see, Margot, if you have something to add on that, because I know both of you work uh, so much in this space and have you know, so much experience. Margot, anything that you might want to share with us on this? Sure. I think that um, this is one of those areas, certainly, where something that sounds uh, easy or um, manageable Fair dealing. I mean, it sounds it sounds simple, but as Bob has described, he's described it very well. There there is a lot uh, there's a lot to it. One of the things that I hear from clients, or that I that I that I see from clients, is um, a 
a misunderstanding that if you use a very small part of the content that you want to use, that that should be fine. That if it's short, if it's a very small piece, then it will be fine. As Bob described, there's a lot more uh, going on with it. But one of the things that, that I learned uh, throughout my years of practice is that, practically speaking, when a business wants to use a small part of something, whether it's part of a song or um, a flash of an image, they really want to capture the essence of it. The reason why they want to use it is it's because it's the hook of the song that everybody recognizes, or it's the instantly recognizable portion of, um, of a piece of architecture or a work of art that, um, that means something in the context of what they're trying to, to tell a consumer or uh, their business audience. So it's, um, it's something that I'm often advising my clients on. Uh, look, I know that you want to use a really uh, short clip of uh, a popular piece of music in your, in your ad, or uh, I know that you want to show a flash of a, of a known piece of architecture to, to situate your spot in a particular um, uh, cityscape or city setting, but um, it's that recognizability or that sort of meaning that attaches to the, um, to the copyright protected work that is in fact the most valuable and means that you may have, um, you may have a challenge with fair dealing. It may not be impossible, but, uh, but uh, it, can be, it can be tricky. And that's where we have uh, some, some really interesting discussions with clients. I think you hit the nail on the head, Margo, in terms of flagging um, one of the um, elements under the fair, fair dealing defense that comes up in a lot of conversations with clients. And I don't know, um, you know how many times that the, the focus of the conversation has been on that and understanding that it truly is a, uh, you know, it's not a quantitative analysis, it's a qualitative analysis that you have to apply. Um, of course, it always depends on the facts, but you've given some great examples of, of um, where that uh, it might be a, a small quantity, uh, but it's a significant component of the work. So, um, so you know, we have we we we've shared some information on you know ownership and permission and rights. Um, let let's talk about what happens when someone doesn't get it right. Right, um, and so let's talk about what the potential consequences um, are for infringement, because I think that's that's a key part of understanding the the IP risk, the copyright risk um, in this space. So maybe with that, uh, Margot, maybe you want to take that one. Sure, thanks, Patiura. I can deal with this in two parts, hopefully uh, fairly quickly. First part is just to talk about what the Copyright Act says, because copyright is statutory law. So you really need, to, in order to understand what the the law is, uh, your first stop is just to to take a look at the Copyright Act provisions and see how they're framed, and then secondly to talk about how that plays out in practice in terms of a copyright owner um, deciding to to take some action, what uh, what that commonly looks like. So under the Copyright Act there is a broad range of remedies available to the copyright owner and those include 
injunction, which means um, an order stopping somebody from, from engaging in an activity. So basically uh, stopping, um, displaying, taking, you know, stopping an ad run, uh, taking down some images on a website, uh, that kind of thing. It can include damages, and those can be both either statutory damages, which are sort of set amounts under the Copyright Act, and those can add up fairly quickly, or uh, there is the option for the for the owner of copyright to claim damages in a particular amount that they believe reflects the um, the right uh, penalty, if you will, for for infringement. Um, there can be uh, an accounting of profits, meaning that if there has been profit made from using the uh, the infringed work, that there can be an accounting of um, of what the profits were to again determine what amount of money should be paid to the uh, to the owner for for infringement, and there can be costs in actions that are uh, that are brought before courts, and so those are some of the remedies that are formally available in practice. And here's the second part: um, owners can take action in a number of different ways. We have been in our practices involved in receiving and sending on behalf of our clients uh, cease and desist letters saying, uh, look, we note we are the owners of this copyright. Um, we have noted that you've been using it in the following ways and we expect you to respond within a you know set period of time to tell us that you've stopped all activities and that you've taken down, if you've destroyed, you've ceased uh, all activities with respect to the song that belongs to us, the piece of art that belongs to us. Um, and if not, we retain the right to, uh, to uh, seek the following things. And that, again, can include injunction, damages, accounting of profits, etc. So a lot of claims may start out by means of a letter. Um, sometimes it's a little bit more friendly if um, a business believes that you've inadvertently uh, used some of their materials and they may reach out on a more informal basis. But quite often if the copyright protected work is important and valuable enough, then uh, lawyers may well get involved and may uh, start reaching out to the other side with a letter or in some other fashion, partly because um, the owner believes that something needs to be done with respect to this activity that's been done with their music, their piece of art, and partly because there are a lot of copyright owners uh, of well-known pieces of music, uh, film, uh, works of art that need to feel they need to be consistent in um, stamping out infringement of their of their the works that they own uh, wherever they see something uh, significant going on. And even though they may not feel that uh, your infringement is necessarily um, a huge impact for their business. They may 
simply systematically send a letter and follow up with you and seek damages because they make a practice to protect their copyright wherever they see it misused. So I'll stop there. There are definitely certain other uh, activities and up to and including uh, taking things to court. Um, but those are some of the, the ways that we see in our practice uh, copyright being protected. And, and I, I, you know, I like that you've highlighted that point in terms of um, that assertion or that enforcement, um, I'll say on principle, but you know, certainly what I observe is that it is precedent setting and whether or not you enforce your rights is important uh, more broadly because there is a precedent sent and you do have a reputation um, in a sense for making sure to enforce your rights. And I think that that is helpful um, in many ways. So, um, so you know, let's get into permissions because we've, we've talked to our listeners um, about making sure you understand who owns the content and uh, seeking permission. And permission is in the form of a license. Um, let's just sort of refer to it maybe that way. So how do you get the license? That's often a question that we receive from our, um, our clients. I know I need a license. How in the world do I go about getting it? So Bob? So it's complicated, um, as with everything that has to do with copyright. Often, as you sort of alluded to, I mean, you need permission usually in the form of a license. Most of the time you're trying to obtain that permission from the copyright owner. So your sort of first step is trying to figure out, okay, who is the owner of this uh, copyright protected work? So, you know, for example, we talked earlier about photos being posted on Instagram. Uh, it, you know, it may very well be the case that the person who posted it uh, is the owner of the copyright in the image. And so you would, you know, reach out to them. Um, that being said, the copyright landscape is also complicated by the fact that in Canada in particular, we have a lot of collective management agencies or, uh, or um, companies that handle the administration of copyright on behalf of copyright owners. And so for certain types of uses, you're not obtaining permission from the owner by means of kind of a, a bilateral bespoke contract with that owner. You're in fact able to obtain the, the permission that you need from a collective. One of the roles that we play, I think, at, at Denton's is helping our clients navigate that landscape and, and understanding, you know, who it is that they need to talk to in order to get permission for the activity in which they're engaging. Um, I think one other thing that I, I, I would flag because it, it gets overlooked sometimes, um, and, you know, this comes up in the space that I and, and my clients tend to deal with, which is film and television production, but there is also uh, this kind of kind of unique little mechanism available at the copyright board for what are referred to as unlocatable copyright owners. So in circumstances where uh, a, a potential user has done research and has found that they simply cannot identify uh, a copyright owner or they cannot contact that copyright owner, you, there is a mechanism whereby you can apply to the copyright board um, who will grant a license sort of on behalf of that unlocatable owner. Um, there are some limitations to that license. It's only sort of applicable in Canada um, so that it, it may not be appropriate for all circumstances, but that is another um, op, you know, 
potential avenue in order to get the permission that you're looking for. But generally, you're looking to get that permission either directly from the owner by means of a collective who administers the rights on behalf of the owner um, or, or some other agency or, or entity that administers rights on behalf of the owner. Uh, or you, you know, in, in certain circumstances, you might be able to avail yourself of the, the unlocatable copyright owner mechanism at the Copyright Board. Okay. And, and one of the last questions here that we have on our sort of most common questions received um, list is about stock images. And so, you know, we find stock images and I think they're so, they're so commonly used, but stock images on a website uh, or there, there's music, etc. And um, the, the question typically goes along the lines of, as long as I agree uh, to their license Am I good to go? Can I use it? And um, I think what I would add to that is um, often the, the license may talk about commercial use or not. I know we haven't really addressed that, but we have been talking about companies making use of content. So Margo, can you, can you take that question um, for us? Sure, happy to. I've certainly advised clients on this question a number of times in my practice. So the first question I guess is whether the website is a reputable one and whether it is, and sometimes you need to do a little bit of digging or asking around to determine whether the website that you're looking at actually is in the business of acquiring rights or ensuring that it has, um, that everything that it offers is in, in the public domain. So either properly licensed or public domain. So the first question is, do the, does the website actually have the rights themselves to, to grant a license? And then the next question is, um, what are the permitted uses and restrictions? So we're in Canada, and I know that some listeners may be in Canada, they may be in other countries. You need to determine whether the rights apply to your country. And sometimes you can see that in the terms and restrictions. You can see that there may be some geographical restriction uh, such that rights may be usable in the States, but not in, in Canada, for example. The other uh, uses and restrictions are also going to be very important in terms of the use that you're going to be making of the of the uh, stock image, the stock music, because quite often there will be restrictions on um, what you can do with the, with the work, whether it's music or, or images or, or video, and you need to read those extremely careful, carefully to make sure that the use that you have in mind matches up and fits within those restrictions. And finally, you'll often see within the restrictions a caveat or a disclaimer that uh, the website or the whoever's running the website uh, doesn't necessarily have all rights and clearances to, to the work. I've seen that certainly in music where clients wanted to buy a library of music for, for certain uses and they it was not, they didn't know and it wasn't apparent from the license. It was hard to see and hard to, hard to figure out that in terms of actually performing the music within their ad or within their program, they needed to get further another license to be able to, to do that. Um, so 
those two things up front, and then once you've decided the license is going to work for you, that it covers what you need, you need to, as a practical measure, just make sure that you're in a position to keep tabs on the license and the usage. So if the license only runs for a year, uh, is somebody internally keeping tabs on when it needs to come down? Uh, that could be uh, sometime in the future, and you need to make sure that you that you um, have a have a reminder system to make sure that uh, you're only using it for as long as you're permitted to, and uh, within the 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 specific uses that are covered by the license, so that somebody in your marketing team, for example. Uh, doesn't go off and start using it for, for a number of other purposes that are, are beyond the scope of the license. So it's a little bit of uh, ongoing homework to make sure that it all works for you well. Okay. So that, that's a good, uh, good short list of, of things to think about in terms of um, uh, how to use those images or that content. Um, I think this is a good point in time to, to close up our discussion. We certainly covered a, a lot. Um, I think, again, reinforcing the fact that copyright is simple and complicated at the same time. Um, I would uh, like to ask each of you, maybe just based on what we've talked about here today, if you wanted to uh, distill this a little bit with one or two uh, best practices for our listeners. Um, maybe, Bob, uh, I can start with you. Sure. I think just to pull on the thread that we've kind of been returning to over and over in this discussion about the the complexity of copyright i think the piece of advice i usually give to clients is just ignore urban legends about copyright ignore for the most part stuff that you hear from a friend or that you read on the internet um, about things like bright line rules, you know, so as Marco alluded to, um, you know, oh, if I use less than five seconds of a song, that's totally cool, right? Or if I only use one third of the picture, that's totally fine. Um, there are essentially no bright line rules when it comes to copyright. Um, there are a lot of contextual analyses, uh, as we talked about with fair dealing, there's a lot of multi-factor analyses. So I always, you know, advise clients, look, just be sensitive to the fact that copyright is complicated. Be sensitive to the fact that lots of stuff is protected by copyright. Be sensitive to the fact that it's easy to infringe copyright. Uh, and be sensitive to the fact that there are a lot of myths or urban legends that have kind of sprung up ar around copyright um, and that they may not be applicable in your circumstances. And without sounding too self-serving, uh, it's always a good idea, I think, to consult with your lawyer before you make any sort of material, significant use of copyright protected material, just to make sure that you're doing so in a way which is compliant um, with an owner's potential rights in that material. And Marco? Thanks, Bob. I think that that was really, really well put. I would only tack on, um, again, because we're talking about situations in which um, you are pulling together something creative of your own. Just leave your, in your, in your schedule, in your, um, in your plan to, to, to get from concept to actually um, finalizing your, your ad, your spot, your program. Just leave in some time to have legal run it, uh, to run it by legal, and also to um, potentially have a several days <laughs> at a minimum to see if you can um, 
uh, obtain the license that you need. If you really, really want to incorporate that piece of music, uh, that, uh, that piece of art in the background, see if you can get uh, the clearance that you need to, to incorporate it into your spot. That's right. Building in some lead time for rights clearance, I think, is, uh, is a good discipline to have. Um, and, uh, and so I think, you know, I guess what, what really hits home for me is this, this basic message that uh, you should assume that copyright does apply. There's very little creative material that isn't subject to copyright. And I think, uh, Bob, I go back to something you said right at the very beginning uh, of uh, our episode, and I think it's going to be the copyright tagline, but copyright, easy to acquire, easy to infringe. I love it. I think it's a great place for us to, uh, to close off the discussion. So thank you so much for bringing your insights um, to this uh, podcast and to our listeners today. And um, I appreciate your time. Great. Thank you both. That was great. Thank you. This was fun. Information provided during this episode should not be taken as legal advice. Denton's Canadian Intellectual Property Group has expertise that spans all areas of IP, patents, trademarks, copyrights, trade secrets, and related disputes and litigation. Our speakers from this podcast episode or any other professional in our group would be pleased to speak with you about today's topic or any other IP topic of interest. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for other episodes in our IP series. Stay well.